You're listening to the Heavenly Chi Podcast, episode 16. Today we're talking with Chip Chase about palpation-based Chinese medicine. Hey everybody, I'm Claire Pyers. And I'm Fee Gitchen. Today we're talking with Chip Chase. Hi Chip. Hi guys. About, we're talking about palpation-based Chinese medicine. Chip graduated from the New England School of Acupuncture in 1984, where he also began his study of Chinese language. He's translated books including The Yellow Emperor's Systematic Classic and Li Shijian's Exposition on the Eight Extraordinary Vessels. Chip has practiced Chinese medicine for over 25 years and maintains a clinical practice in Boulder, Colorado. He's on the faculty of the Seattle Institute of Oriental Medicine, where he teaches palpatory approaches to acupuncture. You can find out about Chip's seminars on his websites, www.engagingvitality.com and www.engagingvitality-europe.com. The Heavenly Chi podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. We hope you enjoy today's show. So welcome to the show today, Chip. It's so great to have you with us. Great to be here. And um, I've got to say that a few years ago, um, Chip came out to Australia and ran a series of, um, of workshops on palpation. And, um, and I attended them and I found them to be really, really amazing. It really um, changed the way that I practiced and really informed my acupuncture practice to a level that I didn't realize was even possible. So I'll say right from the start that I'm biased in that regard. I think, um, I think that it's the type of um, workshops that that type, you know, engaging your inner Chi and inner cultivation is something that um, most acupuncturists should consider doing more of. So today we're going to be talking about all of this type of palpation-based acupuncture approaches that you are um, interested in. Chip, can you tell us a bit about how you came to developing this type of palpation approaches to Chinese medicine? Well, uh, I've always been interested in, in I mean, you, got, you, you start doing Chinese medicine because you're interested in qi, right? And then uh, it, qi can be this very abstract thing when you actually start to study uh, Chinese medicine in an acupuncture school or, uh, you know, and, and I'm an intellectual guy. I, I, have a, I can talk Chinese medicine really well. And uh, I, I really was always feeling like I needed to balance that out with a real hands-on kind of a uh, experience of qi. And uh, so it's, it's been this ongoing kind of uh, path for me uh, ever since I was in acupuncture school. And uh, you know, I think the first continuing ed that I did when I got out of acupuncture school was uh, actually a, a cranial training uh, as, as just another way of of uh, kind of orienting to chi, so it's a it's a been 
kind of an ongoing process. And uh, my uh, friendship and interaction with Dan Bensky over the past uh, 30 years has been a real uh, important part of that where, you know, it started out uh, with him just uh, kind of pointing me in one direction or another. And then I became his, uh, I didn't even give him a choice. I said, no, I'm going to come to your seminars and your classes and I'm going to be your table trainer, your TA. And, and, uh, started doing that. And we started uh, collaborating more. And then I started doing teaching and then he was my TA for, uh, uh, a lot of classes. He's, he, uh, now we, we just kind of teach together and, uh, that's kind of how it developed. Uh, you know, just how do we articulate what we're doing, what we're feeling? Uh, how do we come up with a common vocabulary that, is something that's uh, meaningful and transmissible, not just between he and I and uh, our other colleague Marguerite Dixon, Dickens, but uh, you know, for for other people, how do, how do we talk about this in a way that that other people can use? It's 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 you know less about us than it is about uh, other people uh, uh, being able to make use of it. And so what you've found is that there are a lot of similarities between the osteopathic energetic framework and the acupuncture energetic framework. How did you and Dan Bensky go about developing this framework? You know, Dan was really the, the, the first person that said, oh, look, you have, uh, you know, what in uh, osteopathy is the cranial rhythmic impulse or the... the uh, primary respiration that's just another form of chi well what how do we frame that in that that palpatory experience in chinese medicine we like to talk a lot about chi and we have a lot a lot of conceptual frameworks for chi but we don't have a lot of palpatory vocabulary for chi what does chi actually feel like and uh in osteopathy uh we look at the kinds of things that they're feeling and we just go well that's just some other form of chi and uh, the uh, uh, cranial rhythmic impulse is, you know, really a great palpatory referent for the yang and the chi in the body. So we just call it the yang rhythm. We don't, we don't need to have it be. It, it's the osteopaths don't own that idea. It's it's just a palpatory phenomena that that uh, it, you know any anybody can learn to feel, and, and uh, you know we've just adapted that to uh, a Chinese medical model. That's really interesting, the observation that there is not, you know, many names for the types of chi we experience in palpation, and it's something I wondered incidentally. You have, I mean, you can translate into Chinese. Are there Chinese terms for these things that don't come in so much into the schools of Chinese medicine, or is it just something that they don't discuss either? Well, I... You know, it's interesting. I think, for instance, uh, maybe source chi, yuan chi, is, is a great example of, you know, we have all, we all like to talk about source chi and how, you know, it's at this deep level of chi and it, it, it does this and it does that and it's related to the extraordinary vessels. And you say, well, what does that actually feel like? How do you know you've actually uh, accessed yuan uh, chi? Is, is, is there a palpatory reference for that? And uh, actually, where you start to see that kind of uh, thing discussed is less in the medical literature and much more in the uh, 
uh, Chinese literature of internal cultivation, you know, Nadan texts and things like that, the precursors to what we call Qigong today, you know, they, they, they describe uh, Yuan Qi in ways that are very clearly, you know, are felt experiences. Uh, and, it, you know, so, okay, fine, we learn to uh, palpate those, we learn to feel those things, uh, you know, and it, that uh, that's that's what we that, that's a great example of the kind of uh, translation uh, uh, process that we've done. Uh, this is something that you know Li Shijian he he's writing about the extraordinary vessels and he's saying well look if you're gonna if you're gonna do medicine you have to understand the internal cultivation stuff and if you're gonna do the internal cultivation stuff you have to, to understand the medicine and, and for me I took that take that very seriously so. Okay, what does the internal cultivation stuff have to say about, uh, what does that literature have to say about how source chi works? And if we're going to, how do we translate that into uh, a, a, a palpatory uh, experience that we can work with uh, in our patients uh, in clinical practice? I think that's, um, I think you make some really good points there. A big part for me when I was at acupuncture school was, I think that, um, you know, without having a direct means of assessing someone's chi, and of course I was incorrectly led to believe that, um, you know, that there was no point necessarily checking the tongue or checking the pulse during treatment to assess changes, but like you sort of taught, or the way that I received the teachings that I was exposed to was that you're doing acupuncture and you're putting in these points and you, you're just kind of hoping for a good outcome. And there's a bit of faith, I guess, that was required or a bit of trust that what you're doing is going to have an effect. But with, with, the, um, with the palpation techniques that you're talking about and being able to actually assess, you know, what does Yuan Chi feel like, for example, you don't have to rely on that kind of faith or trust that what you're going to do is is, is having an effect, you're actually able to assess it there and then in the patient. I think that's yeah. great. I mean, we're, we're all, let's be honest, I mean, we're always keeping our fingers crossed, right? <laughs> but, you know, like if you go, well, your only, your only metric, your only measure for, uh, for whether you've done anything useful or not is the pulse, then... You're, there are going to be times when the pulse gets better and the patient, nothing happens with the patient. This is a very common phenomenon. Um, but if you take the pulse and look at the tongue, and not that many people uh, look at the tongue after their acupuncture treatments, but tongues can change. Tongue coat won't change so much, but certainly tongue color, the amount of scallops in the tongue will change. All those things will change. Uh, at least potentially, in uh, if you've done an effective treatment, and the more reference you have for, uh, you know, what it really means, what does it really feel like when you you think you balanced out someone's chi, the the more likely you are that you've actually done that. You know, if you if you see that, yeah, the pulse is better, the tongue looks better, their yang rhythm is better, um, the channels feel more open. You're, there's a much higher likelihood that you've actually done something systemically worthwhile, you know, in, initiated a, uh, a therapeutic uh, response uh, than if any one of those things gets better. 
you know, I'm not the, the best pulse diagnostician in the world uh, by any stretch, but, you know, I think if I can feel some improvement, I'd rather have an improvement across all of those than a phenomenal improvement in one of them. You know, because I think the, the more likely it is that you, you're more likely to have a therapeutic effect if, if more things are uh, improved than, oh, well, nothing happened with the uh, the cranial rhythm, the yang rhythm, but wow, that's a really great pulse change. I'm less impressed by that. Yeah, I do a lot of pulse and tongue checking and also asking certain questions or feeling for certain things during a treatment, and I find that observing all those changes as well is really great feedback for my my developing diagnosis of this person and my understanding of what type of interactions actually do create the transformations for them? Yeah, you know, I, I, one of the things that the way we like to frame this is this is really a conversation that we're having with the chief, right? And that uh, we have to, as many different ways as we can listen to what the chief wants to tell us, uh, the more different ways that we have that uh, we can listen to the chief. Uh, the more likely we're, we are to be that we will be able to respond appropriately given whatever skill set, set of tools we have in our therapeutic toolbox. You know, and it, uh, that's, that's uh, kind of how we frame it. Like, it, it, it's, it's a listening. We, don't, we listen to the chi, and uh, uh, hopefully if we're, it, we'll, it, we'll get it to talk to us in a way that uh, we can make some sense of. Mm. And so where are you palpating on the body? Is it all different places and the channels or mostly the belly or under the occiput with the craniosacral input? Uh, virtually everywhere. Uh, there's a form of uh, listening that comes out of uh, the baral uh, visceral manipulation uh, work where you know, the first thing we do is we put, put our hand on on a person's head very lightly and we'll get a sense of you know, where the sort of most significant place in the system where the chi isn't open uh, is. Well, it'll be a general idea and then we can hone, hone in on that. You know, and it may just be uh, you know, sort of a vague area, lower right quadrant, or it may be something very specific. It might be, oh, look at that acupuncture point is is uh, uh, really shut down, and that's actually the primary thing that seems to be up for that person at that moment. Or, you know, we may say, oh, look at that. It's actually, you know, it's an ileocecal valve that's uh, uh, restricted, and and it, you know, that may make. We, we tend to do this kind of listening when we know as little about the patient as possible. We do it before we have a lot of information, so we're not biased. We don't have a lot of uh, preconceptions about what we should be feeling. We go, oh, look at that. That that's where the chi's stuck, even though this person's got headaches. That, you know, the, the goal is not to to guess what's going on uh, with a person. The goal is to figure out where the chi is the least open. Uh, you know, where things are flowing the least. Uh, uh, well, and uh, that that's the beginning of our conversation. So do you usually get people on the table in the first appointment before you do all the um, 10,000 questions? Yeah, I, I, I uh, you know, I have them fill out a, you know, kind of a standard questionnaire, and, 
And uh, like I said, I want to know as little as possible. And, for, and I tell them this before they come in. I say, look, I, I, first thing we're going to do is is this manual stuff. And, you know, that takes 15 minutes or something. And, and uh, I do that. And then I look at the, uh, the paperwork that they, they filled out. And then, then I have them tell me their story. I'm actually very interested in, in medical narrative. Uh, uh, you know, I'm interested in what, how they tell their story, you know, but first I want to have my, uh, uh, my palpatory experience as, you know, unsullied or un, un, muddied by what they tell me is possible. And then I want to see, uh, what boxes they checked on, on their intake form. And then I want to hear what's important to them. And, uh, that's kind of the, the, the triad of, uh, uh, conversations that, that I have with my patients in a new patient visit. And how much do you find, um, your own, like, I guess the, your own inner state of health and being, how much do you find that that, interferes or plays a role in your ability to accurately assess someone's um yeah what's happening with someone's chi well it's 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 significant um and i think the as you're learning i think this is where we see this is really uh, really important is as you're learning a technique you you know it's really important that you be as clear and centered and have as much of yourself out of the the out of your own agenda out of the the picture as possible particularly as you're learning a new technique and then as you you begin to integrate it into yourself you get better and better at doing it and you can you know you could be like on the verge of getting sick or feeling you know poorly on a on a tired on a, a five o'clock on a Friday afternoon and still be able to do it. And, uh, I actually find it, especially in those times where I'm feeling subpar in one way or another, the, uh, I'll do the listening and, uh, the listening will, it will be like, that's the beginning of an interesting conversation for me. And it draws me in and it's, and it's less about how I'm feeling. And I, it gets, it's a way of actually getting me out of the way. I, all I have to do is have the, the capacity to get out of the way enough to begin to add, to, to engage that conversation. And, and, and then I go, Oh, look at that. You know? Oh yeah. Huh. That's really interesting. And, and then we, the, we, we begin to begin to converse. I'm finding this really interesting and inspiring because years before I started studying Chinese medicine, I started doing Reiki and I found that just putting your hands on someone's occiput, and sitting there for 15 minutes without talking and knowing nothing about them reveals so much information and it comes, it just arrives in my body. And I haven't really been able to put it into words, so I'm really fascinated with what you do. I'm going to have to do your course. But I've often had this um, difficulty in deciding how I start a treatment, whether or not I'm going to start it like that when I'm doing acupuncture or whether or not I'm going to start with the, the standard structure of asking the 10,000 questions. And the more I've um, practiced, you know, it's been about 11 years now, um, the more I, I want to go straight into the palpation and actually use 
that capacity for their body to communicate directly when I'm empty, when I don't know things about them. So this is really inspiring for me to hear. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, people say, oh, your style of practice. And uh, one of the things that I think we're really clear on is that Dan and Marguerite and I, we're not really advocating, we're not hawking a particular style of practice. We are advocating for using palpatory tools and enhanced uh, vocabulary of palpation in whatever style of practice you do. But one of the things that is very clear is that we tend to not do protocols. You know, we tend not to say, okay, well, we're going to use the Nanjing, uh, you know, classic of difficulties, meridian style thing, where the first thing we always do is look for the weakest channel. Uh, you know, and we're going to do the mother and, and, and son channels and at, on, on the, the yin channels, and then we're going to drain the yang channels. You know, and there's rules. Or you think about Monica-style acupuncture, where there's rules about what you do when. And, and uh, going all the way, you know, certainly by the Ming Dynasty, you have these very fixed rules about how you, for instance, access the extraordinary vessel. So you do this point, and then you do these other points, and then you do the couple point. And we do, that's not how we do things. We say, okay, where's the optimal place to begin a conversation? And then we see what kind of, what's the next bit of the conversation. We don't lay out the how the conversation's going to evolve. We, we don't presume that we know how that conversation's going to evolve. Uh, it, it, it just happens one step at a time. We don't have to remember anything. We just go, okay, what's happening now? Okay, what makes most sense? You know, we might think, oh, this is going to be an extraordinary vessel treatment. And, oh, actually, no, that doesn't, that's not, doesn't seem to be what the system wants. Actually, the system's wanting something more like a channel divergence treatment or a primary channel treatment or something else. You know, oh, look, we need to, it, it, it didn't pan out what we thought was happening. And the chi, especially with all these different uh, uh, reference for that with the yang rhythm and just this overall shape of chi, the overall quality of the chi, uh, you know, given the, the ways that we, uh, uh, the vocabulary we have for uh, engaging that gives us uh, uh, some ongoing feedback about how the treatment uh, evolves and when, when it's done, you know, like we, we, we always laugh at, at, uh, when, we, when we see those pictures, you know, people dripping with acupuncture needles, right? And uh, kind of the opposite extreme is we hear these stories about, well, the, the acupuncturist you could do a one-needle treatment and, uh, uh, and that, can, that can cure somebody. Well, how do we know? What, do, how many needles do we really need? You know, and it, it, uh, I think we find when we're really listening to the chi, uh, you can do a lot more with a lot fewer needles and you learn to trust that. Um, but uh, and it looks less and less like a, uh, a fixed protocol over time. Mm. You learn to trust that, oh, that's just what that person needed at that moment. Yeah. One of the things I was really, um, was really imp impressed by, is that the right word? Yeah, it is. It left an impression on me. Um, was when you made reference to one of the lines in 
I don't know which book it is, you'll be able to tell us, um, where they talk about acupuncture and how you do acupuncture. You know, the, the practitioner, and I'm paraphrasing here, the practitioner puts the needles in and then stays until the chi arrives. And, and you talked, you know, and you gave a demonstration and, you know, we talked about that in the, in the seminar and I was really, um, it, I was really pleased to hear the way that you discussed that because it made sense to me. You're going right back to the very start and it's not necessarily about what needle, but it's, you know, how you insert it and it's designed to be that conversation, that interaction between the practitioner and the patient. Yeah, uh, so Ling Shu 9 talks a lot about that. Ling Shu 1 talks about it as well, you know, just waiting. Like we say, oh, it's the qi, it's, it's getting the qi, and that's and this this kind of active thing, but um, being, being willing to wait for the qi to arrive and, you know, all that really needs to do, to happen for the qi to arrive is you need to sort of be in a certain way, and that that's a mind thing, and it's a it's a, a a body thing. It's a you know it's a whole way of being that allows the chi to arrive. You know, it's not for my I have nothing particularly to say about projecting my chi. Uh, for me, it's a lot about creating the optimal conditions uh, in myself for that allow the chi to arrive. You know. What's the what does the Ling Shu mean? We have the Su Wen and the Ling Shu. The Ling Shu is the divine pivot. What's the divine pivot? Well, the divine pivot is the needle, but really we as practitioners become the divine pivot. We take that seriously. Well, how do I how do I become the divine pivot? Well, part of that is just being able to wait in the right way, you know, and just be that pivot. Pivots are things that don't really move. They're still. Uh, they're empty. Things move around them. So it's for me. It's a, not about manipulating the needle or uh, so much, or or you know saying, "Oh, I'm going to zap you with my awesome chi power." Um, <laughs> I leave that to other people to to do. Uh, I don't think there's nothing wrong with that. It's just it's much uh, more productive for me to just try to be in the right way when I have that needle in, and just and and. It, it's funny you were talking about you know doing Reiki or if you're doing that biodynamic style of cranial work, that's kind of the first thing they do is, is they just camp out for 15 or uh, minutes or so and let the let the chi settle. And we don't tend to do that so much in acupuncture. We we appreciate the chi in sips, but when we're needling, just being there, being quiet, being present is uh in in my experience at every perhaps more uh effective than uh you know performing a particular manipulation or you know projecting my own chi my even projecting my own goodwill you know my good healing vibe my medicine buddha uh, mojo on onto my patient no i just try to be there in just the right way Mm. is this reference in the link shu is this the one where it says you must needle um, with the presence as if you're facing a tiger? Uh, I, don't, that, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how I would needle if I was facing a tiger. I guess I'd, be <laughs> I'd probably quiet. be I running the other way. 
we had so much discussion about this in first year and, and um, somewhere in my memory I logged it as coming from the Ling Shu, but I'll have to look it up. Yeah, look it up. I, I, yeah. I don't know. That, yeah. that doesn't jump to mind as, as a particular passage, but I'm, I'm not known for having a great memory for that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, I, I remember the tiger. And I think, you know, when we had discussion about it, it was, it, it was mostly trying to initiate that kind of being fully present and being fully present almost in your primal body where you're actually experiencing sensations rather than thinking. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. It's a great image. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got these fabulous notes from you, and um, I'd love to start moving through them a little. You've got here palpation as a context for experiencing the relationship between form and function, being form being structure and function being chi, um, relative to the liver chi and the triple burner. Are you able to go into some detail about that for us? Well, sure. I, I mean... I, I don't know how you learned about liver chi in, in your Chinese medical training, but you know when I trained in the early 80s, Manfred Porker was really uh, influential, and you know the idea was is that he changed. He didn't want to use the word liver because we think of the liver as as you know this big organ on the right side of your body. So he he called it you know orbis hepaticus. And, you know, the, the idea that liver chi stagnation actually had any, was really separated from the notion that your liver was involved in that in any way, shape, or form. And that, uh, I think that's wrong. I think that's a misunderstanding uh, that, uh, you know, these, these organs in, in Chinese medicine actually do correlate to organs in uh, in uh, anatomic anatomical structures, and that uh, we why wouldn't we then have some way of you know directly engaging that uh, that structure that uh, you know either it seems like we we tend to go one way or the other you know if we're doing kind of a uh, a, a purely musculoskeletal uh, uh, kind of an acupuncture uh, strategy, we might say, okay, and now I'm I'm uh, stimulating the tendon semimembranosus to to uh, uh, create a muscle fasciculation, and that's some form of chi. Or we go, you know, kind of the opposite extreme, where we have a very uh, energetic form of uh, acupuncture, like. Toyohari, where it seems like it's all about chi and very little about engaging the structure. And this, for me anyway, and I, I think for Dan and Marguerite and many of the people we've trained who do this, this uh, kind of palpation gives us a way of, of really seeing how chi is not separate from form and structure. It, and that doesn't just reduce it to form and structure or just abstract it to something that's completely sort of etheric, that chi, chi and, and structure, form and function are intimately related and, and uh, we really see how, we really experience how that, uh, what that uh, relationship is like uh, much more deeply when we have a broader way of, yeah, a broader uh, spectrum of uh, engaging the chi. If we're just taking the pulse, 
that's a great example of, of how we can say, oh, your liver chi is really stagnant. You can feel that on your, on your uh, uh, left wrist in that middle position. That little bump is really strong. That, to me, is pretty abstract. You know, and then even even you, we do abdominal diagnosis, and and sure, maybe you know, depending on the form of abdominal diagnosis, you might say, well, lateral to the uh, abdomen, the umbilicus is is really hard. No, that's the liver reflex area. Well, what about actually feeling the liver? How does the liver feel? That has a, a normal motility, an inherent motion. Uh, can we? What does that feel like uh, under our hands? Uh, and, and does that give us some information about uh, how how the liver is functioning? That's one of the very first things that uh, Dan taught me, you know, back in, I was just out of acupuncture school, and uh, we were talking about, we were, this was actually before the internet. We were writing letters, believe it or not. And, uh, you know, he was saying, oh, look at, look at the visceral motility and see how that motility tracks with your Chinese medical diagnosis. That sort of thing. So that's a great example of, of uh, you know, how, for me, a very tangible example. The liver is the largest uh, organ in the body. Uh, so that's how, that's, that's a, I think, a, a great example of the uh, palpatory integration of form and function. And so when we're talking about the triple burner, which is, I mean, that's a whole episode in itself, is does it even correspond to any you know anatomical organs or glands or whatever but um how do you put the triple burner into that equation of form and function i think the triple burners uh maybe even a more significant example because we have such a sense of ambiguity about what it is and and how it works and and that you know it's the one that has function but no form, and that, that this has actually been a, a topic of debate for hundreds of years. Uh, but there's actually uh, a great essay by uh, Zhang Jiebin. He's a late Ming Dynasty uh, writer who uh, is both an acupuncturist and a highly evolved herbalist. And you know, he wrote about the the triple burner and the the Ming Man and the Baolo, the, those three, uh, as it, really illustrating how they were indeed, there were indeed structures associated with those things that were well defined in the Chinese medical literature, going back to the Neijing. You know, you can't uh, you can't say that the triple burner doesn't have a structure when. You know the the upper burner is described as going from you know the the top of the stomach to the top of the throat. You know that that's that's anatomy. That's anatomy that they had. They're using anatomical uh, landmarks. I think it has a lot to do with the uh, the pleura in the thorax and the peritoneum in the abdomen, uh, and that uh, that's described as. Uh, also being intimately linked with a big fatty sheet that's about the size of a palm, which is the greater omentum. And these things are well described in the literature. And uh, Zhang Jiebin actually lays all this stuff out very, very clearly. You know, it says, uh, uh, you know, he, and he's not just making it this material thing. He's working in Yijing stuff and internal cultivation 
ideas all through his argument, but he's saying that look, th this does have a somatic. There is a there are somatic reference for the triple burner, and you can feel those fascial sheets. You can learn to feel the the triple burner and know whether that's a uh, there. That's the level at which the the problem exists. Um, so I think the, the that's why the, I think the, the triple burner is uh, another great example because it seems so intangible and yet you know clearly they were talking about it uh, <clears throat> they they were describing it in uh, as, as having a form. <clears throat> I think when they said it didn't have form, I think what they meant it didn't have a fixed form. It was kind of like a bag. You fill a bag full of water. It takes whatever bag whatever form that. Uh, you put that bag in, but uh, clearly uh, it it has some structure, and, and we can feel that structure. So, same with uh, you know this notion of the moving chi between the kidneys, or you know the connection between the heart and the uterus. Those things, there are there are anatomical reference for those things that that can help us, at least in some cases. At least in some cases, you know, there's the <clears throat> if it doesn't help us in all cases, so what? We don't have to make it fit every time. I mean, that's one of the messages of Chinese medicine is that that uh, you know we we use whatever ideas make sense, uh, make the most sense in, in any given moment. We don't get fixated on oh, we always have to make everything make sense in terms of the five phases, or to make everything make sense in terms of you know, the six stages or whatever the model is that we happen to be enamored with. We have to be a little more flexible in that. But certainly understanding these things uh, anatomically and having an idea of what those anatomical structures feel like can really help us do Chinese medicine. And I, Yeah, and I guess we, um, I guess we need a really solid understanding of both ends of that spectrum um, because you know having that having that deep intimate knowledge of of what's actually there physically in the structure helps to I think give a better understanding of you know what potentially could be happening with the chi as you were saying before you know with some of the listening techniques that you know that it, it could be possible to feel with with that listening that there is a problem in someone's ileocecal valve. And if you don't know what an ileocecal valve is or where it is or what it does, then it restricts your ability to understand what's happening with the patient and to then develop, you know, mm. to work out what you're going to do for them. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's feeling and then there's knowing what you're feeling. Yeah. This, you know, this is actually really interesting because, you know, it, it took us a while to start teaching the, the visceral kind of listening, specifically because uh, we were concerned that uh, acupuncture students didn't have adequate anatomy. And, I, and certainly the more anatomy you have, the clearer a map that you have. But uh, even if you don't really know what's under your hand, if you, the more specifically you can get, the more specific you can get about, oh, I feel something under my hand in this place at this depth, that is, for starters, something you can look up. But you can also map that on to whatever you understand about uh, how the, the channel system works, right? 
So, for instance, you say, well, that's the ileocecal valve on, under my hand, and I think that's what that is. And, you know, there's, there's a way of locating that, you know, it's kind of slightly above McBurney's point to make it simple, right? And you go, well, okay, is that on the stomach channel in this person or is it on the spleen channel in this person? Or which of those two channels is really going to get to that? Because we don't necessarily go, oh, it's the ileocecal valve, I'm going to needle there. We're acupuncturists. We tend to often needle away from points, right, uh, where we think the problem is. So we're going to, we, we have to figure that out. Uh, you following me? Yeah. So yeah. the so the the you know we have sat we use a form of listening that actually Dan developed called channel listening where we say okay we 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 see which channel is is most resonant with that listening at we'll say what we think it might be the ileocecal valve and we go okay it's the stomach channel uh, <clears throat> but the ileocecal valve is also pretty deep so we do we have to pick a point that's going to be most resonant to get that that to release and we need some tools for picking points and that you know we may say okay well that's super deep so we have an idea about how the aspects of the stomach channel that go really deep are the channel divergences so maybe we need this needs to be a channel divergence treatment and then we we check and see we need a way of checking to see whether that idea actually pans out or oh no actually it's the point that it ends up being is stomach 37 uh and that okay, so that's a like a that makes sense. That's the master point of the large intestine. But uh, what what else do I need to do? Huh? Well, I don't know. Gosh, somehow maybe there's some other piece of information that you have that makes you want to look at the pericardium channel, and you find that oh, look at that spleen six is is uh, uh, active in some way. Oh, what does that become? Actually, that's a that's a chong my treatment that you're actually needling the chong aspect of that because you need a, uh, one of the master points of the Chiang Mai, stomach 36, 37, 39 on the lower extremity and its, ma and its couple points, spleen, spleen uh, uh, and pericardium 6. So things, that's an example of how things can evolve and you may, not, you may or may not know that you're on the, the, uh, the, the ileocecal valve, but what has to change is that listening has to release. You will feel that release under your hands. And, you know, you'll be happy having feedback from the pulse and all these other things that, that may have helped give you information about where you need to be, where you, how you need to navigate uh, to, uh, you know, what else you need to do. It's not that you're, you're, this helps us use all of our diagnostic tools. This isn't in, uh, instead of doing pulse diagnosis, it helps to give you another piece of information in addition to abdominal, uh, to pulse diagnosis in the same way that, you know, more traditional forms of uh, Chinese uh, abdominal diagnosis does. Mm. It's really interesting development on our understanding of the function of the points as well. Very exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I don't, I rarely pick points based on their function. I'll, 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 I'll scan and see which points are active, and then and then I'll say, well, okay, which of those points that are active make most sense in this situation? And a lot of times you find that sometimes you end up picking, you know, the usual suspects. It ends up being, oh, I just did spleen four, spleen six, and large intestine four on this patient. Wow, I could have I could have done that my first semester in acupuncture school, right? <laughs> but you know, but you end up knowing that 
that is in fact a really good thing to do for that person. You know, and the alter the alternate thing that can happen is that oh, I ended up doing spleen seven on that patient. When's the last time you thought about doing spleen seven? You know, you end up picking points that oh, because because that's at clearly the point that's most uh, active on that patient. And then you look it up and you go, well, actually, that makes a lot of sense for that patient. I never really thought about that in that way. So it can go either way. And, and you're also, whilst you're doing the, the listening for, um, like, the more specific areas of, um, of dis qi disharmony within the patient, you're also doing overall assessment of the yang and the yin energy within the patient with looking at what the osteopaths refer to as the cranial rhythmic impulse and the fluid type. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, we're not worried. Again, you know, we're listening to the yang, we're listening to the yin. We, we say, oh, we're balancing out your yin and yang. Well, okay, how do you know you're balancing out your yin and yang? Is that just something, is our, the only reference we have for that, the pulse? Well, shouldn't, shouldn't that feel like something? I mean, the pulse is supposed to be simply a a referent, a localized referent for what's happening in the system as a whole. Should we be able to feel that, uh, those kinds of things in the in the chi as a whole? I mean, should, should we we talk about in herbal medicine, chi, blood, and fluids? Shouldn't those things shouldn't those things be something that we can palpate? Um, and that uh, uh, there are in fact uh, you know chi, clear palpatory reference for what does the fluid body feel like? And that that's that's well articulated in uh, Chinese medicine, and uh, and how to actually feel that stuff is especially well articulated in in uh, osteopathy, and it really helps us doing herbal medicine as well. You know, you say, well, great example is, uh, you know, you have uh, you try to decide whether somebody has yin deficiency or DMP. Now. You know, if you're just learning about those things, it seems like that should be some that should be a distinction that is uh, a very clear and easy to make. But in fact, it's a the clinical reality is the amount of the yin deficiency or the degree of DMP uh, can be very hard to discern, and that uh, you might have uh, a pulse finding that really is screaming yin deficiency and a, and a tongue finding that's uh, screaming uh, damp heat and a, uh, a you know an ambiguous abdominal finding but you listen to the fluid body and you, you get a very you can get a very clear idea of well, what are the fluids doing are they dry or are they boggy and uh, I think that's a, a, a great example of how we can use this uh, not only in acupuncture but in uh, herbal medicine mm. And um, in your courses, you give some examples of how these types of diagnostic aids can deepen our understandings by demonstrating how they improve our ability to use the extraordinary vessels. Um, can you talk about this? Well, I think that the uh, there's lots of different ways to use the extraordinary vessels, right? And we have uh, we we have a lot of a lot of people say a lot of things about what the extraordinary vessels are and, and their relationship to internal cultivation. This is something I've looked at uh, pretty intensively, both, you know, kind of from a scholarly academic uh, standpoint, looking at uh, 
you know, the this entire scope of the extraordinary vessel literature uh, in both medicine and in uh, internal cultivation. And, uh, you know, what are some of the uh, uh, commonalities uh, there? And, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, our capacity to get quiet ourselves is one of the, and, and create the conditions in ourselves that then create the optimal conditions in our patients for getting quiet to optimally access the extraordinary vessels. That's really the central message of the internal cultivation literature, uh, as far as I'm concerned. It's not, oh, okay, we're going to do this microcosmic orbit, it was originally called the water wheel, or, or you know, actively circulating the extraordinary vessels. That's from, from my read of the literature as a whole, almost a secondary thing. It's really uh, a, uh, a, about, well, how do you quiet the system enough so that, that the extraordinary vessels can really come online? Um, and uh, again, you have to quiet yourself in a certain way uh, so that you can begin to have that conversation. Uh, and I mean, that's, a, uh, I think, a great example that uh, was talking about learning to feel different palpatory phenomena. I think the fluids are very closely associated with uh, the extraordinary vessels, I, uh, I think, in, 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 as a matter of uh, clinical practice. And, you know, in order to really feel the fluid body clearly, especially at the beginning, you have to have a certain amount of capacity to get quiet yourself to, to really be able to have that uh, conversation. Uh, the fluids. And so when you're when you're talking about that um, that state of like getting into that inner that inner stillness and being being the divine pivot, um, a lot of practitioners have moments at different times, I guess, where they kind of step back and they go, "Wow, that's actually a really awesome treatment." I don't remember doing that <laughs> or, you know, it feels like it's someone else's treatment and, um, and I wonder how much of what you've been developing over the last few years with, your, uh, with what you're teaching with, with this, how much of, um, of what you've discovered puts a framework into that, like what's happening when, when we have those moments? Yeah. You know, my take on this is that the chi is way smarter than I'll ever be, right? That, that, that my, my part of the, the goal of the conversation is for the chi to tell me what it needs. Uh, you know, it's like being a midwife, you know, that, that you, you really have to honor the, uh, the process the chi is going through in its impulse toward regulation, its self-regulation. And that, that the only thing that, I really need to do is to figure out how I can help that, how it needs me to help that. So I take chi very seriously. I and the, the how can I help the chi do what it's going to do anyway, optimize what it's going to do, uh, and that when I, when that happens well, then it's not something that you did. You didn't do the treatment. The chi did the treatment. You're just helping out. It's a lot. It really is a lot like midwifery. I mean, early in my career, um, I went to a lot of uh, uh, births, and uh, 
you know, with, with midwives doing home births and things like that, you know, whenever there was a, a difficulty, uh, you know, they call me in and I got to see how they really wa they really honored the birth process. Uh, and, you know, they weren't trying to force anything. They were trying to help things out. And that really influenced me. Uh, you know, so I think of myself as kind of a midwife to the chi. It's just a, how can I help? Right. As, as opposed to saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this to your chi now. That's not how I, I orient to the, my work with people is, is that I'm, I'm not doing, uh, I'm not presuming to, to, uh, you know, impose something on the chi so much as help it do what it wants to do anyway. And, you know, I just, I, 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 I'm not going to, you know, conjecture, uh, about where that intelligence comes from or, or, you know, how that's maybe connected to some greater universal intelligence. For me, it's very pragmatic. That she is smarter than I am. I just need to figure out what it needs me to do to help it. Mm. That's such a beautiful image too, the midwifery, because we're assisting the birth of the transformation of the patient. You yeah. Know? Yeah. In the beginning, you were, you know, you touched upon the palpation as a context for applying the principles of the Chinese internal cultivation traditions in medical practice. You know, this sort of experience of palpating the qi in in martial arts and internal cultivations. Um, I wonder if you want to loop around back to that as a way of wrapping up. Yeah, I mean, it, when uh, a great example of that maybe is, you know, I started working on the Extraordinary Vessel book with Mickey Shima, and, uh, you know, clearly the most problematic part of that book is the internal cultivation strata. You know, there's the, the, the parts of that book that really deal with that um, are, uh, they don't really make sense uh, immediately in terms of how we think of doing Chinese medicine with uh, how we think of using extraordinary vessels in a medical context. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking when uh, I got into that was, oh, we're going to figure out which particular uh, lineage of internal cultivation, leisure gen, uh, subscribe to, and maybe even, you know, figure out what kind of extraordinary vessel Qigong, what we call Qigong, he was doing or, uh, you know, he was engaged in. And uh, it, as it turned out, he's drawing from such a broad range of the literature that, you know, that's not the province of any one school. You can't really say that's, uh, you know, the, the southern uh, complete perfection school or, or whatever. You, it, that it's, it's too broad for that. Um, so, you, what you, but what you do see is that in virtually every passage that he talks about, especially when he's talking about the deeper, more subtle aspects of the uh, extraordinary vessels. He's talking about, and, and even, interestingly enough, some of the deepest, most young aspects of the, the, the extraordinary vessels really only express themselves in these profound states of quiescence. And, it, you know, here's where we have a a palpatory vocabulary from that in certain styles of 
cranial work, the biodynamic cranial work, where, where that's really the, you know, the palpatory vocabulary for that is so well mapped out, and it maps so clearly with the internal cultivation literature that, that uh, it's, it's hard to ignore. It's hard to think that, that they're not talking about the same thing. And at very least, you see, well, okay, you have this internal cultivation stuff happening where in, in that literature where how do I translate that? How could I begin to translate that into a, a medical context? You know, it's just, it, it's almost like, well, it's just philosophy. It's just ideas. But you have some of these uh, cranial uh, phenomena. You can use those as a, uh, a way, a handle for engaging uh, these uh, these principles in a medical context, you know, so that you know whatever else you say about source gene, particularly you know whatever your kind of meta transpersonal ideas about source gene, you know, coming from the cosmos, what whatever that happens, whatever else you say about it, it's clearly happening from places of in, in a milieu of deep stillness. A stirring that occurs from a place of deep stillness. You see that in the liter in the internal liter literature of internal cultivation, and you see it in cranial literature very clearly. Um, and that you know that that gives us a handle, so that it's not like we ha all have to do qigong, or it's not all not like we all have to become Taoists. I'm not a Taoist. I, I have no particular interest in that, other than seeing what what they're talking about, and then having some tools, some palpatory tools, to bring that into my medical practice. Mm. Now, I should say, I, I'm a, a, I've been a, a, a Zen practitioner for a really long time, so I'm biased. I'm biased towards just sitting still and seeing what happens. You know, so, you know, that's <laughs> full disclosure, right? <laughs> Conflict of interest. Else, you'll, you'll have somebody else on, your, on, on your, your show, I'm sure, who has a different perspective that's mine. Yeah. yeah, it's um. Well, they're all really interesting to me, and even just as you talk, I'm I'm becoming more and more aware of how much I've learned about palpation from the martial arts practices that I've been involved with. Um, yet that's not something I really fully realized until I listened to you speak about it. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 lots of ways to approach it. I mean, a, a huge part of what I did, uh, I studied with a couple of uh, cranial people here in Boulder in particular, and a huge part of what they taught me had less to do with feeling new things than to with how to uh, how to articulate what you're feeling and how to transmit it, and uh, and so you know, even if you're not really drawn toward the the specific palpatory techniques that we're about, uh, that we use, I, I think we, we, we've come up, we're, we're increasingly improving our capacity to, to talk about these things in really pragmatic ways, you know, uh, ways that aren't just, you know, a bunch of uh, quotes from old texts and, you know, ends up being philosophy and you can, uh, you know, say whatever you want about it. The, the people we train... You know, we end up having uh, 
we can have a conversation with the chi together and know we're talking about the same thing. And that kind of a methodology is transferable to lots of different kinds of uh, palpatory phenomena, whether it comes from the martial arts or internal cultivation or whatever. Mm. Well, thank you for joining us today. We're aware that uh, you have to go shortly, so <laughs> I think we could keep talking. But uh, thank you for having the capacity to articulate all of this to us today here. Well, thanks so much. It was really fun. And uh, I love, as you can tell, I, I love talking about this stuff. And uh, uh, only the only thing I like better than that is actually kind of demonstrating it. So. Yeah. Well, if anyone out there uh, is, feels really inspired, look up Chip and um, go and do one of his courses. I'm going to do that. Yeah. Claire's already done it. I've already done it. I'm going to do it again. Uh, you can join the conversation on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear your thoughts and your responses to today's show. And uh, we will see you next week. Yes, thank you, Chip. Thanks so much, guys. Bye Take for care. now.